10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Live from Suffolk, this is The Late Show with Libby Isaac. Good evening and welcome. It is the 1st of March, if you can believe that, and I'm Libby Isaac. This is The Late Show. Tonight, I have the privilege to host Adrian Lyons and Frank Norris. Both have a huge amount of experience in education. So settle down, get comfy, and get your questions ready for another superb evening of education. Live from Suffolk, this is The Late Show with Libby Isaac on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. Um, I hope you've had a fantastic weekend and I hope you had a really good start to the week. Um, it's Tuesday and it's pancake day. Um, I don't know what that means to you, whether you've had some pancakes or you're just about to have your pancakes. Eight o'clock's probably quite a nice time to have them. Um, I went to a pancake party. Yes, those things exist now, apparently. Um, that was great. Lovely. Have your pancakes made for you. Um, my one-year-old just ate from the jar of Nutella so that is how we do it in my house um but he had a wonderful time and my three-year-old definitely had a wonderful time as well um so I really hope you've had a fantastic day now tonight I have got two extraordinarily qualified educators on the Teachers Talk Radio. So as mentioned in my introduction, I've got Adrian Lines, uh, formerly in HMI for 16 years, 16 plus years, uh, currently an educational consultant expert working with a number of schools um, up, and down, up and down the country. Um, we're going to be finding out a little bit more about um, him and about his career choices um, when he pops in. Um, and as if that wasn't enough for you, um, we we also have Frank Norris joining us and I can see that Frank Norris has entered the live studio so welcome and fantastic well done for getting in um, and he will also take you through his career but what a huge wealth of experience um, we have there and he was awarded the MBE for education so um, privileged to have both of you um, on the Teachers Talk radio this evening. So I suppose what I want to know from you um, what you're thinking about as well is what has your experience been within an Ofsted inspection? Um, has it been positive? Has it been negative? You know, is it something that you dread? Is it something that actually you, you know, you really did have quite a, a good experience with? Um, if you could believe it, I've been through four inspections under the new framework, actually. Um, and I, I think a lot of my experiences have been quite positive. Um, I don't know whether that's, you know, my situation, um, but that's that's how it was. But obviously, we're not just going to be talking about often inspections because we've got a whole wealth of experience in front of us as well. So I really wanted this show to be about sort of top tips about what would you ask? You know, how could we make the process better for us as teachers? Because we're the ones going through it as well. And why wouldn't we ask our two absolutely extraordinary guests about that this evening? 
Um, so please, 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 if you have a question, if you are feeling brave and you'd like to call in um, this evening, that would be absolutely brilliant. And um, we'll get you live on the show because that's how wonderful Teachers Talk Radio is. Um, if uh, you just want to add your ideas into the text box as well, that is also fantastic because a live show really makes it brilliant when you get a bit of interaction from the audience, as we all know, because hopefully you've listened to lots of these shows before so I'm really really looking forward to this evening um, I want to find out about um, top tips for teachers I want to find out about um, top tips for middle leaders for senior leaders um, but I also want to ask um, Frank and Adrian about primary experiences about secondary experiences because I know they've both got experiences in both the sectors as you'll find out I want to know about forgotten subjects I want to know about you know their opinion around you know we've just come out of Covid apparently um, you know we're dropping the restrictions what do they think about that I want to know what they think about the GCSE curriculum you know was it time for a change and, and I've got an article to share with you in a second about that as well um, you know and also I know that there was a Twitter feed up um, through the Teachers Talk Radio and we asked about, you know, if you had an, an opportunity to talk to a former HMI, what, what would you ask them? And there was a huge amount of questions on there. So I've picked out some of those as well. But again, if you want to add in at any time, please, please, please do. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go to the news and the adverts um, so that we can get the technology all working. Um, and then afterwards, I'm just going to talk for a little bit about that article that I spoke about from The Guardian and then we're going to bring Frank and Adrian on board. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb Digital Portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. 
we need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. Okay, so we're just gonna um, we're gonna come back to the news later on in the show, and that was obviously our fantastic sponsors right there, um, because we've got lots and lots to talk about this evening, and um, I don't I don't want to miss miss a bit. Um, so as I was talking through there, there's um, an article that I read uh, not that long ago, and it was from the Guardian, and I think it was written by, in fact, I know it was written by Simon Jenkins, and he talks about how the pandemic gave us all the chance to rethink the education system. So perhaps, he suggests, it is time to ban GCSEs as we have known them. And obviously, a humanities teacher, a history teacher, and I, I know that after the First and the Second World War, in particular the Second World War, education systems were changed. Um, as a reaction to what happened during that time. Um, and the article sort of moves on and it talks about stop schools from being testing machines and actually think about a curriculum that educates the students we have in front of us. I mean, how wonderful is that? Um, and I don't know about you, what you're going through at the moment within your school. Obviously, I'm talking more secondary at this point, but obviously I know that there are systems in place for primary. You know, we're onto our round of second mocks, for example. Um, the GCSEs are going ahead as normal, um, albeit a few little bits of content are missing. Um, however, the pressure on teachers is real. The schools, the pressure, you know, holding everybody accountable because of data, it still exists. And the cycle is repeated again and again and again. And obviously, there are fundamental problems with that at the moment, because we're coming through a pandemic, because of the mislearnings, because of the misconceptions. Um, wouldn't it just be refreshing to have an education secretary, uh, perhaps, that stands up for our children and promotes a system that is focused on education and not just a series of assessments. And it just really stood out to me as an article really relevant to what we're going through at the moment. And I think I massively agree with him. And I want to ask Frank and I want to ask Adrian sort of their opinions on the current GCSE systems as well. Um, so it's not just a show about, you know, the Ofsted framework. It is literally a show talking to two, you know, wonderful educators who have a vast amount of experience out there that we can use for, for the greater good. So please get your thinking caps on and ask away. Now, I know that, Frank, you are listening and thank you so much for joining us. If you could call in now, that'd be brilliant. I'm going to get you and Adrian on now and then I'm going to break it up later down the road with some more adverts and things. Um, I know that Frank has been out this evening with his family celebrating his eldest birthday and he has come back to come on to the radio. So we're incredibly um, happy and privileged to have him. So if you're listening, Frank, if you call in, that'd be great. Um, and whilst Frank is doing that, let's introduce Adrian. Hello, Adrian. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you, Libby. Can you hear me? We can, fantastic. Now, now we've got the technology sorted. It's Excellent. always a bit dicey, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I just noticed on my um, on my app here. It says defamatory, harassing, obscene content is prohibited. And yet we're going to talk about Ofsted. So, um, that's a tricky one. 
Well, I'm very pleased that you brought that up. A little bit of humour uh, related to it is great. And that's why I think you'll be an absolutely brilliant guest as well. Um, hello, um, Frank. Nice to see you. Sorry, not see you. Speak to you this evening. Yeah. Hello. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, we can. Thank you so much for joining. I know. Uh, it's great. Thank you for inviting me. And hello, Adrian. How are you? Hi, Frank. I'm good, thanks. Nice that some people are out <laughs> celebrating. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was a lovely evening. Uh, there was uh, major roadworks outside the restaurant, so I was a bit worried we weren't going to get back here in time. I've, I've oh, don't, don't uh, worry. I, I'm very good at talking. We, we would have been fine, and uh, you could have joined in when you could. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you both sort of a series of questions, and I'll mute you at different times, and then at other times I'll probably unmute you, just depending on the background noise, uh, because it would be really great for you both to sort of, um, you know, talk, talk each other's answers as well and, and have a bit of a dialogue there. Um, so I'm just going to start off with Adrian, if that's all right. So Adrian, if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners this evening and a little about your background um, and what you're doing now, that'd be great. Okay, well, I left Ofsted as an HMI, one of Her Majesty's Inspectors, after just over 16 years in that role, um, which seems an incredibly long length of time. But it was such an interesting job that it really didn't feel that long. Before I became an HMI, the longest I'd been in any job was three years. So it's, it, it still baffles me that I was there for over 16 years. And before that, I was a jobbing Ofsted inspector. Before that, I was a teacher trainer. And before that, I was a teacher for many, many years. That adds up to me being quite old now. Um, actually, <laughs> I'm only 59. Um, but it, it, that, I, I just say that because it's relevant to what you were talking about about GCSEs because I'm old enough to have taught in my first two years in teaching something yeah. called O-levels yeah. um, and remember GCSEs being introduced so that's um, yeah I've, I've been around for a lot of GCSE. <laughs> Well, it'd be really, really good to sort of ask that question sort of later down the line as well about the, our current GCSE systems. That'd be great. Um, so do um, I sort of read, because obviously I did a little bit of research on you, Adrian, um, that you were the advisor for economics and business. Is that true or is was that still going ahead or is that sort of... Yeah, so for quite a few years, uh, my specialist role within HMI was the National Lead for Economics, Business and Enterprise. And um, that came to an end about two years ago when Ofsted's focus on the curriculum turns out to be quite a narrow view of the curriculum and economics business and particularly enterprise no longer fitted into that narrow view. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I think that's relevant to yeah. um, the conversation yeah, about GCSEs yeah. as well. And, and and I quite like the way that you're going with that as well. Um, so, did, is that what you taught when you were a teacher? Was that yeah. the subject? Um, I was I was mainly a teacher of economics and business, um, but I also taught history, RE, maths, uh, as you do. Uh, yes, exactly. Okay, fantastic. So I'm just going to ask the same question to you, Frank, if that's okay. So, sort of, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your background and what you do now. That'd be great. Yeah, um, I was. Um, I started off when I left school. Um, I had a, a serious lung complaint, so I ended up not doing my A levels. So, ended up working in a bank um, mm -hmm. and uh, sort of got my banking exams, and that got me into university. Um, and uh, I then sort of had this sort of ambition to be a, 
because uh, um, I actually was part of a sort of leadership program in the bank at a very young age. So when I joined the teaching profession, I was aware of the fact that there wasn't a great deal of um, attention being given to leadership training, uh, diff- very different now, but it, that was the case then. So I, I sort of got to primary headship at the age of 30 and then had a second headship wow. about five years later. Um, and then I had a year in 1995 where Ofsted was starting to inspect. I'd had an inspection. Um, I, it was, I had no idea what happened. I, I, I think we got mm-hmm. a good out of it, but I don't really, I didn't understand the framework. I didn't really understand what was happening because that was the very first sort of inspection that the school had had. And I was fortunate to be given a year seconded into Ofsted um, where I had a mentor who eventually became the chief inspector. And that sort of set me up. I went back to headship after that. And then in 2001, I joined the ranks of HMI and uh, worked my way up to be the person responsible for developing inspection frameworks uh, for schools, um, initial teacher education, early years and local authorities. And uh, I then worked for a year with Michael Wilshaw. Um, Very happy year, I have to say. but actually, I, I think I just ran out of steam. I was having to work in London uh, virtually the whole week. And uh, I live in Stockport. And uh, it was having sort of quite a detrimental effect on on my sort of health. I didn't realize mm-hmm. at the time. Um, but I then worked for Stockport Council for a year and then got a job working with the co-op, who um, I eventually led their academy program. And they've got about 26, 27 academies across the north of England. And then 2019, I stood down, I got to close to retirement age and then um, was seconded to the Northern Powerhouse Partnership as their education and skills advisor. And I've also taken on the role of um, of being Blackpool's Education Improvement Board uh, chair. So I'm still heavily involved. And, uh, you know, I, I still, you know, I chat, I've, I've not actually spoken you know, face to face to Adrian for a long time, but, but actually we still <laughs> communicate every now and again you know, by email and, and such yeah. like. I mean, because the Northern Powers Partnership work that we do, I mean, Adrian's got a skill set that's very relevant to that. So, uh, you know, there have been occasions when I've spoken to him about where I've needed advice or, you know, we've asked him to sort of support some work. But but actually, that's that's really where I'm at. Well, definitely a huge wealth of experience between the both of you this evening. Um, it's quite quite an educational sandwich, isn't it? Um, and I, I'm just going to say it again to anybody listening live, please, please, please text in your questions because you have got two absolutely wonderful educators here who are willing to take on your questions. So please, please, please do that. That would be fantastic. Um, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to come back to you, Adrian. Hello. Um, Hi. Can you just Hello. Can you just tell us a little bit about your inspiration behind your career choices? And I suppose, you know, why why did you go into the HMI route? Like what, what was the inspiration behind that? Okay, well, I'm afraid I'm going to give you a very disappointing answer because there wasn't anything inspirational about it at all. Um, what what happened was, um, I, I like Frank actually had a um, had a job. When I left university, I was um, I, I worked for an insurance company for a year before I trained to be a teacher. But after my, um, I, I was I was able to take a risk, and I guess. That's probably the story of my career, that I had a very supportive wife, which enabled me to take some career risks, one of which was 
going to be a teacher trainer at the University of Brighton on a series of fixed term contracts. Um, but eventually they came to an end and it was just about the time when um, the qualification to be a teacher, QTS, became disassociated from a programme of study. So you could be assessed directly by the teacher training agency as it was. So I managed to get some work doing that. And then um, that led to other things like doing some training on contracts by the DfE. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, um, this independent consultant business, then I probably better get an Ofsted badge um, because that seems to carry some credibility. But I certainly don't want to inspect. That seems like an awful idea, doing, doing inspections. <laughs> Um, but I better get the badge and do the training. So that's what I did. I did the badge, got the training. And in those days, this is pre-2005, um, inspections were carried out by um, a number of independent, small or big inspection companies. And the one I worked for was called Equalitas. They were lovely and I got, um, and they really believed passionately in ensuring that children got a good deal. That's what the, the role was about as, as an Austin inspector. Um, but HMI were these weird people. The, the first piece of advice I was given for my first inspection was if HMI come and visit the inspection, because HMI used to inspect inspections, if HMI come and visit the inspection, hide. Find somewhere like the back of the library and just hide so they don't catch up with you. And that was kind of the relationship then. And after about three years of this, um, the government decided they could save an awful lot of money, of money by having shorter inspections, which Frank's got a lot to do with, um, designing those, um, moving from the old five-day big teams of 20 in a school down to two days with very small teams. Um, and that meant that these small inspection companies were wiped out. And I thought, oh, I might not have any work come the autumn. Um, I saw an advert for an HMI role. I thought, well, there's absolutely no way I stand any chance at all getting that because HMI are these sort of superhumans. Um, <laughs> well, it turns out they're not. It turns out they had me. Um, <laughs> so I stuck in the application uh, without any, just so that I'd covered all bases, basically. And um, I got accepted in 2000, September 2005, I started. But the interesting thing is that the, the reason I was, I, I was accepted, the main reason really, is because I had lots of inspection experience by then. Um, yeah. And there were a lot of HMI leaving saying, I didn't become an HMI to inspect. Um, so there, there were quite a few leaving in 2005, creating these vacancies. And then we started to implement the inspection framework that was um, that was based on the fact, as David Bell, the chief inspector of the time, said, schools have got so good at self-evaluation that all we need to do is check out the central nervous system of the school. And if you find that this, their um, self-evaluation is borne out, then that's it. Leave them to it. That's fine. Job done. Well, that didn't. And I think Frank was behind that that model, but it didn't really last very long. Well, did that answer the so, question? I can't remember what the no, question was. Sorry, absolutely <laughs> answered the question. And I think I think you're you're obviously quite humble because I, I can imagine they wouldn't just accept anybody into the process. Um, so there were from... seven hundred and fifty of us for fifty. There are seven hundred and fifty applications for fifty three places. Well, there you go. You, you did very well. <laughs> Um, so Frank I suppose a similar question to you and it was one of the questions that somebody um, wanted uh, me to ask as well from from the Twitter feed and it's like what what was your inspiration behind some of the career choices for you? Well I, I, I think it's 
when I think back to my first year as a teacher in 1979 um, in a junior school in Stockport, I remember looking in the book. There was a very small, short, uh, sort of low-level sort of book uh, shelf. It was it was quite close to the floor. I remember that, and it, mm-hmm. and that meant it was quite dusty. But there were these series of um, sort of what looked like red-spined booklets, and these were known become known as the Raspberry Ripples. And these books, when they're all lined up, there are about thirty of them. These were sort of short, sort of reports produced by HMI at the time, who weren't doing sort of frontline inspections. Nobody was being inspected. I think somebody said you had a a chance of being inspected once every 150 years. Um, But actually, looking at those Raspberry Ripples made me think, oh, who are these people? How did this information, why isn't this information shared more widely? So there'd be something around primary history, or there'd be something about, uh, and at that time there was, I remember going, teaching and, and doing a science lesson in year six and it was the first science lesson these children have ever had and uh, I, I remember teachers coming to me at the break at the break and saying you know that's quite revolutionary Frank are you sure you should be doing this you know because I don't think the head teacher's mm-hmm. going to like it and, uh, I, and and actually the inspiration for doing it was in the Raspberry Ripple book where it spoke about primary science and uh, I was really sort of fascinated by this group of people who were sort of there was a mystique about them because they weren't very well known and then about sort of like I can't remember my brother also became a teacher and he became an HMI in Wales working for Estin about 10 years before me he was an incredibly young HMI an English specialist and I remember speaking to Barry about it and that just sort of fired me up even more so when we were inspected I then was one of the first schools just by chance to get inspected and then they were looking for people to do inspections. So I had that sort of secondment year where actually there was nowhere near like 750 applicants. I think there must have been about 50 applicants. But I do know that the inspection process was really tough. We went to a hotel in York, and I think these were held around the country, and uh, there were about 50 of us there. And you were given tasks each day, and you had to hand like your homework in, and then if you didn't meet the standard, you were given a slip and told to leave the hotel the following day. So it was really like at the end of the day, you, you, you would go to bed, you'd had no idea who you were going to meet the next day, whether the colleague that you've been spending the last three days with would actually survive you know, the, the exercise. And this was a way in which they were trying to create that sort of um, marketplace for uh, inspectors, you know, to sort of try and increase the numbers and, uh, and I joined HMI as one of those quality assurers. Um, so the reason why in 2005, David Bell was totally committed, as I was, to um, wanting to use self-evaluation as, as a means for assessing how well the school knows itself. Because actually, that, that for me was not just about saving money, but it felt like the, the system had matured to a position where it needed to change and it needed to give greater weight to the, the judgments and the and the decisions that were being made by schools as opposed to inspectors simply coming in with a little bit of preferred practice and saying, well, that's this is the way you ought to have done it. And I think for me, um, at the moment, one of the things that irritates me a lot is that we actually haven't changed very much in terms of the regularity of inspection. We are simply inspecting different things and doing it about the same way that we used to. And actually, I feel as though 
we should be focusing much more on how well the school knows itself, how honest it is with itself and how honest it is with its community and its governors. And then saying to schools, you know, actually, let's let's have a look at that and, and, and let's say, yeah, OK, that's fine. It looks as though you've got an accurate assessment. You're not completely failing the students or the pupils. You know, let's let's work together to sort of sharpen this up and to make it better. And let's do that less frequently. Because actually, if you can prove that you're accurately assessing what you're doing, that in a way should give you a bit of a pass towards the length of time that it is before you get inspected again. Um, but we seem to be sort of saddled with a system which actually just feels as though it's got to regularly inspect. I think we've all fallen into this trap of thinking that the whole system would fall down if we didn't inspect. But COVID has proved that that's not the case. And I think that we need to sort of to look very carefully at, at, at the the negative aspects of regular inspection on schools and on staff. And, and actually, I do hear people saying in, in the work that I do, well, you know, something that Adrian and I would have heard a, a number of years ago, well, we'll wait until we get inspected and then we'll do that. You know, that really, for me, is not the way to do it, you know. And I think mm. that there is, uh, for me, um, you know, a need for us to just trust the, you know, let's face it, the 20-odd thousand schools the vast majority of them are doing a fantastic job, you know, that, that you might decide some of their outstanding, some are good, some are not quite so good. But the number that are completely failing their, their students is very small, but they are still there and we still need to inspect in order to to dig that out. You know, so I'm, I'm one that thinks that we need to inspect, but less frequently and to give weight more to the uh, the evaluations that schools have done on their own practice. Yeah, and I think I think that that came through on the, on the Twitter feed as well. Was and you've answered it really well. It's like, um, yes, there there is a lot of negativity around it, but actually the the point, like like you've just said, is you know that you do it because it's for the students, isn't it? You know, there's a duty of care for the students, and if if you're honest and you're open and you know your systems and you know your assessment systems, then the process should be you know what it is and it should be a helpful process and the fact that you've got some sort of ideas around perhaps what what you could change about the system because you're out of it and you're looking in that's 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 a really good sort of thing to unpick as well I think there's a bit of feedback when I have you both on the line at the same time but we'll try it um so I suppose to both of you and if we start off with Adrian and then Frank you can you can chip in as we go okay, just um, before you you ask the next question Libby can I just comment on what Frank's just please. said yep, yeah, I, I mean I, I agree with a, a lot of it but I, I think the interesting thing is that and I, um, I, I don't know if you agree with this Frank but I think people have this strange idea of Ofsted we've probably got having been on the inside of it we've probably got a different mm. view but Certainly when I was a teacher, I saw Ofsted as that thing, that organisation. When I was a jobbing Ofsted inspector, I saw Ofsted as that remote organisation. Even when I was an HMI, I still saw Ofsted as that remote organisation. And of course, it is an organisation, but actually the organisation, because it's part of the civil service, exists to serve one person. And that one person is the chief inspector of the day. And there's been a you know, quite frequent changes of chief inspector and every chief inspector kind of turns, people just think of one Ofsted, but actually Ofsted gets turned on its head um, 180 degrees every time there's a change of chief inspector who all seem to want to react to the previous one. So whilst David Bell was very clear about it being about self-evaluation, we then had 
Christine Gilbert, who I thought was absolutely brilliant as chief inspector, but she was very focused on 23 judgments for Every Child Matters. Oh, not let's say that anymore. Every Child Matters, are we? Um, but but that was very, very important. But then she was followed by Michael Wilshaw, who oh, we don't want any of that Every Child Matters rubbish. We, it's standards and it's standards and standards and behavior, the only things that count. And then that was turned on its head 180 degrees by the current incumbent who said it's all about curriculum and her view of the curriculum. Um, so that every the reason that inspection is so heavy-handed and isn't less frequent is because every chief inspector wants to make a difference in their short period in office. That's like it's it. so it's so good to hear to hear that because I don't think enough people in education or the listeners for Teachers Talk Radio, they, they wouldn't know that. And that that makes your opinion of the inspection and the HMIs coming into the school, it makes it very different if you know all the information around it. So thank you so much, Adrian, for that. Frank, what, what, what are you going to say to that? No, I was going to say I agree with uh, Adrian. I think one of the, the, the real sad thing of this is that where we are at the moment um, with this focus on curriculum, um, I suppose... We could debate whether or not that focus could have been achieved with, shall we call it the Michael, Michael Wilshaw framework, <laughs> because actually this is about emphasis and there is a, a sharper emphasis on curriculum. But actually, I think that what we've ended up with is a mechanism for actually satisfying the requirements of inspection through, you know, identifying intent, implementation, all of this sort of stuff, which actually I think is probably not helpful. Um, because actually it makes it feel as though that's the driver is actually to satisfy the framework. And I think for me, there would have been, we, we probably could have got what uh, Amanda Spillman wanted um, by simply just focusing more on the elements within the older, the old framework and just emphasize more the importance of curriculum. Um, and I think the, the point that Adrian made is absolutely spot on. And, it, and the point I'm making here proves it but actually every new chief inspector feels as though they've got to have a framework under their belt, you know, and uh, I, I actually delivered two for Michael Wilshaw within a nine month period. And it, and that's basically what saw me off. But actually, you know, if, if that sort of thing, then actually imagine what that feels like for schools, you know, within a, you know, so a new inspect, uh, a framework was delivered. I think it was January, 2012. And a new framework then, that's a new framework. Another one was delivered in September 2012. Uh, 2012. You know, that, 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 that's very, very sort of challenging for and very sort of uh, makes an uncertain sort of an uncertainty about the process, which I think is unhelpful. And uh, so I think that, yeah, we, we, we probably need to have a period now. I mean, for me, that again, the, we're talking about uh, COVID, you know, we're going through or, are we out of it? Are we not out of it? Um, but actually, you know, having inspection reports at the moment that don't give sufficient weight to the uh, efforts of the profession uh, since the beginning of COVID, I think, is probably not is a poor reflection of the, of the framework in that, you know, in a way, trying to pin all this down to a couple of sentences, which is what I read um, consistently in um, in reports. And I also still hear, and I heard last week, of a lead inspector telling a head teacher, a secondary head teacher in the Greater Manchester area, that yeah, I know, you know, very early on, 
yeah, I know. Well, we're out of COVID now. We've got to look forward and, and all of this. Well, actually, you know, if you're if you're living within some of these communities, COVID is still an issue. You know, so I think that there is this real feeling at the moment that for me that the framework is, has become quite too narrow, too focused on curriculum, and some of the important aspects of school life are simply not being captured. Um, and, and I think that that's probably not doing the schools a good service, but. But there's also, as Adrian knows, the added responsibility that the chief inspector every year has to report on the effectiveness of schools to Parliament. And actually, you know, unless there is sort of sufficient, you know, unless there's a, an evidence base that actually they can refer to, you know, I think it'd be quite right for parliamentarians to say, well, I'm expecting to read now quite a lot about how the schools have recovered or what they're recovering. I mean, I'm not sure how they're getting that from the uh, from the inspection reports. They don't ask so, the right questions, Frank. MPs don't, yeah. ask, don't know the questions to ask. So the so chief thing, inspector yeah. frames the report to their own interests. Yeah, and I, I, I think that that's where, for me, um, you know, it really does need to sort of respond. The, the framework needs to be more responsive to... To the to the and reflect the sort of the, the stress and strains of the of the profession, um, and yeah. this sort of thing around uh, curriculum. Yes, it's very important. I don't deny that, but actually, if that's if if in order to achieve the focus on curriculum, we we ignore. I mean, some of the aspects that Adrian was talking about. You know, some of the areas that he's responsible for. You know, uh, some some aspects around community. Some aspects around how these schools interact with local services you know i'm not i don't read about any of that and, and i think that, that 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 for me is where the stress and the strain of children's services is at, at the moment you know um so it's just uh it's very disappointing i think where we are at the moment but we are where we are you know and so in a way people like adrian myself we're we, we're no longer in the in the inspectorate i certainly don't inspect anymore um, but actually, I, I'm not going to give up you know, speaking up for um, things that I think are, are wrong in the system. And I think that the current framework has got some major deficiencies within it. And the pandemic, those deficiencies, I'm afraid. Here, here, here. I mean, look, I mean, a year ago when I was still still in it, some of us were arguing strongly that um, um, th th there used to be a judgment um, in previous frameworks called care, guidance and support. And that seems to be the most relevant judgment possible for the situation we're in. Um, but no, we had to get back to pre... Just in so many things, we had to get back to normality of pre of 2019 and the EIF. Um, and yeah, there isn't any adaption to take account of COVID and what schools have gone through. Or, you know, you might say the real world. Yeah. But if 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 um if you I'm just going to mute Frank for a second because I think there's a bit of back it, it was fine when you were both talking if if you both you know you're both saying that the current systems perhaps you know do need to be updated they do need to change to reflect the the situations at the moment what what can be done about it if you if you do and your huge wealth of experience and your influence that you've got you know how how can that change happen I mean. Unless you're the chief inspector yourself, how can that change? Because this is what teachers, this is what schools, this is what leaders are all feeling at the moment as well. And if everybody's feeling it, why can't something be done about it? Okay, there is one way of doing something about it um, because it happened. Like, as an example I can give, 
where the um, the chief inspector has to appear before the education select committee every so often. Um, and about um, this time last year, she was asked about something called the Baker Clause. Now, for people who don't know, the Baker Clause is a clause in an education act that says that schools have got to um, provide information to their pupils on alternative providers of education at um, particularly age 16, but also age 14, actually. So if there's a, a UTC in the area, for example, they've got to make their pupils aware of it. And MPs were reporting that um, that schools weren't, weren't doing it, and Ofsted was still, was A, not mentioning it, and B, still making schools good, um, even if they were breaking the law on, on that. Um, well, you may have noticed that since September, the um, inspection reports now, because it's now in the writing guidance, have to report on whether the school meets the Baker Clause. Now, that's just a little example, but you know, the the only way of actually getting Ofsted to change is through politicians requiring that change. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose that takes us back to the article where we started, doesn't it, Adrian? <laughs> um, and and I know that you mentioned that article as well in one, in one of your tweets. I'm just going to ask ask another question before we come back to that. So um, and I'm going to ask Frank first. I'm going to ask you afterwards, Adrian. Um, so if you were the chief inspector, what what would you your focus be? Well, I, I think that, as I said before, my focus would still remains uh, schools proving that they know themselves well. Hmm. And oh. uh, I think that that's the only way I think uh, we can expect uh, inspectors to understand the context of the school. And we, um, we have really disregarded self-evaluation to a point where okay, there is some self-evaluation going on, but actually it's not a, an assessment against the accuracy of that self-evaluation. And uh, for me, I, I, I would still go back to that. Um, and I, I think that it's not about validating or, uh, or accrediting a school's self-evaluation. There are still sort of elements that you need to investigate. Um, but I think that for me, uh, I would go back to, I, I wouldn't go all the way back, Adrian, to 2005. I, you know, there were some errors and mistakes around that. But I do think that the fundamental issue that David Bell um, put forward um, is correct. And I, and I think it's also a sign of, of a maturing system. Um, if, we, if, we, if we, you know, I think it was 1992 when Ofsted started inspecting uh, on a regular basis schools. And actually to think that we haven't really progressed it much. <laughs> We're just sort of finding other or new areas to investigate. So at the moment it's curriculum. Um, I, I, I do feel as though um, we're not really evaluating the whole school. And I think we need to go back to evaluating more of the whole school. That might mean that we need to inspect less frequently, um, but do it in a more sort of in-depth way. Um, and that might mean that uh, there are clearly, I mean, I, 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 the work I do with the Northern Powers Partnership um, and, and my work as the CEO in the Co-op Academies Trust, we were serving some of the most uh, socially and economically disadvantaged communities in the north. And, uh, you know, to get a good Ofsted in the, in the current framework, you know, you, it basically unbelievable. You know, so there's something wrong with the system whereby schools serving some of the most challenging communities, 
you know, are, are finding it increasingly difficult to get the the really high grades. And and I think that for me, we, we, it's all become boiled down to that single grade. Um, and and actually, the, the 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 focus has become so narrow that actually, you know, it it really is sort of stacked up against some schools more than others. And uh, I, I do think there's interesting the work that Adrian uh, Adrian Gray did, a former uh, senior HMI, who was looking at all of this and. And and he was the person to identify that coastal schools were struggling with the framework. And I remember that was around two thousand and eight or something like that, two thousand and nine. And in a way, you know, I think that they're still they're, they're still up against it. And I think schools serving tough communities are still up against it because we're not actually giving enough weight to or opportunity for the school to explain its context and how it actually sort of is trying to support communities in in, in a broad way. So, yeah, I mean, I'd go back. It's probably a little bit of David Bell, a little bit of Christine Gilbert. I think it's a little bit of Michael Wilshaw. I think that's that's where it is for me. And what about you, Adrian? Um, yeah, I mean, I agree with most of that. Um, the uh, I, I There was, when Amanda Spielman first became HMCI, there was great a, a ripple of hope amongst HMI that she was going to get rid of grades. She did talk about it at first, but then she was led upon by the um, by certain stakeholders, um, and grades had to had to stay. But that you know, there's so much effort, both by inspectors, but usually by schools. In you know, is it a grade one or is it a grade two? Is it outstanding? Is it who cares? The important thing is, are the kids getting an, getting a, a good education? And Absolutely. as long as they are then we could leave them to it. I, that, that would be my view. And we need a wider definition of good education. But having said that, I'm not sure that I agree with, well, I'm sure that I don't agree with Frank on um, less frequent inspections because we're now seeing, aren't we, that the schools that were, you know, the formerly outsta outstanding schools that got their exemption from inspection in um, 2010 are now just starting to be inspected some of them for the first time in 15 years there's a lot of stuff that's hidden there it's a school near me that that went from a grade one to a grade four when it got inspected um because yeah it was getting brilliant exam results but um the um the attitudes that have been inculcated in the school the personal development that they were absolutely awful um, and that's why it was put in an Ofsted category of concern. So I, th I think we, we've seen quite a bit of that with schools that were formerly grade one and have come down because previous frameworks have maybe emphasised too much examination results. And that there's, um, um, you know, Amanda Spillman's right when she says we've got lead tables to take care of that. We actually need to take a wider look at what the school's providing. Absolutely. So do you think um, it, the backtrack comes in and I take it off, I'm taking it off, take it off again. Do you think that um, it is possible to get a picture and a grade of a school with a maximum of three days, most of the time, two days? Do you think that's enough time? Um, is that to me? Yes, and I, I will ask Frank afterwards. I just can't okay. have you both on at the same. No, fine. Um, 
No. <laughs> I mean, if you if you want a really good thorough inspection, you would go you would go back to the pre two thousand and five model or have in a large secondary school having um, having a team of 12, 15 inspectors in for four or five days. I suspect nobody wants that. But that's how you'd get a really thorough um, understanding of the school. And I, I used to find, you know, back in those days, I used to find that, you know, take, take behaviour, schools could hold it together, really, um, it, it, on Monday and Tuesday. It's Wednesday when things started to take a nosedive. Wednesday so, afternoon. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> or um, a Thursday, in my experience. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, it was the third or fourth day of the inspection, as opposed, mm. you know, so if you're only in for two days, in fact, re- realistically, it's one and a half days of evidence gathering, really, although obviously it's supposed to be two full days. Um, no, you get you get a snapshot, and it's um, and you've got to, to some extent, then rely a lot more on the school's self-evaluation, which which is a good thing. Um, but if it doesn't start to stack up, then schools could be disadvantaged by the fact that you're getting such a short snapshot so okay. i'm just i'm gonna ask frank the same question um frank what, what's your opinion on that well i think i, I think adrian and i unfortunately have, 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 have worked within or inspected schools that are in special measures and most special measure schools are very easy to identify you know that to be at most special measure schools that i've inspected you know pretty early on um that they're you know that and, and actually those are the most concerning and actually those are the situations where i feel as though you know ofsted really is the reason why it exists um mm. but i think that, that there is as adrian said there is so much time spent about in team meetings about oh is it all right is it good you know is it good or is it outstanding you know it, I, I i i i want to sort of I, I'd love to be able to say to you that this is a really clearly defined discussion, but actually it's a corporate judgment. And, and at times, you know, that this, the, the, the sort of negativity of this, I think that it, it can be led very much by the lead inspector. And, uh, and actually I think Adrian and I have, have experienced it where um, I think when HMI were quality assuring, um, I, I would quality assure an inspection and it would it would be a very different inspection when I was quality assuring it as opposed to when I wasn't. And I think that that, that sort of still happens. So I think that the thing for me that, that concerns me is this sense that actually if we, you know, the grades aren't always helpful, you know, in terms of uh, a, a lot of time is spent by inspection teams trying to work out what that final judgment is going to be because they know how much hangs on it. As opposed to, well, what is it that this school actually needs to do here to actually improve? You know, and if we spend a bit more time analysing that and talking to the school about that in a more open way, so that actually we didn't end up with this. Oh well, I don't. As a head teacher, I don't want to tell you all of this. You know, we know it falls apart on a Thursday afternoon. Well, why don't you say that? We can help you together determine what is making that a difficult afternoon for you. Um, and, 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 you know, let's just, let's just say, you know, actually, it's fine. The, the school's fine. You know, that it, 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 if we can get away from this, it's good, outstanding, whatever. And actually just get to the point, we know you're not special measures. We know that every school has got areas for improvement. 
you know, if we can get to that discussion and say, well, how can we help you improve? And, and actually, I think that's where the, the uh, experience that HMI have, and I have the greatest respect for people like Adrian and, and others who taught me so much about you know, school improvement, about inspection in general, about uh, education policy and stuff like that. Adrian and I were really lucky. We, we had, we've had induction into HMIDEM, which is far better than what most are getting now. And actually, all of that is part of this sort of rounded approach that was given to HMI, you know, about sort of improving your professional awareness and development. And I think that we, we miss that um, because actually I think that, that's where those HMI that were able to talk to schools about, well, you know, you ought to really try this. As a, and I know that some of that happens, but actually when you reduce the time down and actually you get it down to, you know, and, and the stakes are so high, actually head teachers are very guarded about unless you get a really early sign, look, you're good and everything's fine, don't worry, then you can start having some of those discussions. Unfortunately, some of those discussions, those that, you know, when you've got a short inspection, some at the time that actually those those sort of reassurances come quite late in the day um, and I think that's a real shame you, you don't get mm. to that sort of professional dialogue uh, uh, as much um, with these sort of three day two three day inspections I suppose it's, it's, it's not the same as, as being part of an offset as a head teacher but the last time I sorry the, the last time I was sat in front of an offset inspector I did ask them um, you know, what can I do to improve on this? You know, can you give me some advice on this? And what can I do to make this better? And they said, oh, I'm not allowed to give advice, blah, blah, blah. But they did, they did sit and they told me some, some, you know, real helpful things that I can do to improve. Um, so I, I do think it, it is out there. It's just, as you say, in the time that you have, it's really difficult um, to, to do it in that way. Um, I'm just going to put you on mute a second because the 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 um, the background noise is is getting in the way of our conversation. Um, anyway, it's a really good time um, for us to go to the news and to the adverts. And that Adrian and Frank, you can both go and get a drink of water. You've got about five minutes uh, before we'll come back to a conversation. Um, and when we come back to the sort of the, the conversation that we're having this evening, which is absolutely brilliant, by the way, thank you so much for both being on with me talking about this. Um, one of the things that I would really like to talk about is some top tips um, for teachers, for middle leaders, for senior leaders, because I do think that's that's some really helpful advice that we can talk through. I also really want to get under the skin of talking about the GCSE curriculum at the moment and a little bit about assessments and your opinions on that. And I, I'd like to talk about PSHE, RE and perhaps some of those forgotten subjects. And then I think that's probably going to take us to half past nine because we're already done an hour. It doesn't seem like that at all. So go and get yourself a drink. And uh, after the news, we'll be back for some top tips. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events 
aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.wetherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N.co.uk. Introducing Bulb. With evidence-based learning at the forefront of education, let Bulb Digital Portfolios help reshape your educational practice. Bulb helps teachers teach and learners learn. Bulb is an easy-to-use, fully accessible digital platform that captures students' digital learning assets in one place, allowing them to evidence their learning and reflect on their growth. Our dedicated team of education specialists are on hand to ensure the Bulb fits seamlessly into all of your teaching practices. Come take a look and get a free account at bulbapp.com. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is facing demands to drop her £300,000 scheme to cut the bottom off doors, aimed at improving ventilation to combat COVID-19. Asbestos experts have warned that the plan could expose pupils and teachers to deadly dust. A 2019 report revealed that about 1,600 Scottish schools still have asbestos fixtures and fittings, including fire doors. Asbestos was banned in 1999. Director of Action on Asbestos, Phyllis Craig, said, Asbestos can be found within doors and in different areas in schools, and I would sincerely hope that this is taken into consideration before any work is carried out. Schools are required to have had a survey to identify the presence of any asbestos, hold a register of the whereabouts of any asbestos and have a plan to manage asbestos. My question is, does the Scottish Government know if schools meet these requirements before any work is carried out? If not, I'd be concerned asbestos may be disturbed during the process of cutting the doors. Asbestos exposure can have health consequences decades after exposure and this needs to be recognised and treated with the seriousness that it merits. After safety concerns were raised, 
Education Secretary Shirley Ann Somerville appeared to back away from plans, but they have not officially been dropped. A Scottish Government spokesman appeared to pass responsibility on to the local authorities, saying, There is no such plan. It is for local authorities to decide what measures they take to improve ventilation in schools. In Northern Ireland, legal action has forced education chiefs into a U-turn and a return to rules which were in place last autumn, which allowed any teacher who qualified in the South to immediately register with the General Teaching Council for Northern Ireland. Kirsty McGrath, who graduated in Dublin last summer, took action after rules were changed and Michelle McElveen, class teachers from the Republic of Ireland, as rest of the world, resulting in a lengthy wait. Miss McGrath, through her solicitors, wrote to the Department of Education, outlining their intention to seek a judicial review and as a result was added to the Northern Ireland Teacher Register last week. Patrick Higgins, solicitor, welcomed the decision, saying, the failure of the Department of Education to process Ms McGrath's application is unlawful and unreasonable. With a teacher shortage in Northern Ireland, this continued delay is impacting pupils, schools and teachers. Although it was named in legal papers, the Department of Education has denied it or Minister McElveen has any role on determining who can be a teacher in Northern Ireland. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm addressing a problem quite a few teachers have, the dreaded lock screen in the middle of a lesson. We've all experienced it when you're displaying something and the computer decides you're inactive and goes to sleep. I notice this most if you're using digital link instead of a whiteboard. Well, I may have a way to stop this happening to you. However, it will depend on your school's network settings. You might not be allowed to change the options I'm about to discuss. A quick workaround for this is to see if your display has a freeze button. This will hold whatever's being shown until you unfreeze. Lock screen happens because your computer is trying to save power and also to keep you safe by locking after a specified time of inactivity. If you're going AFK and leaving your computer unattended, press Windows and L. This will lock your machine. Even if this next tip isn't working for you, this will. Never leave your computer unattended and logged in. Windows and L is a good habit to start. Now you can lock your machine at will, you're ready to change the settings to keep it on. We need to go to the display settings. A quick way is to right click on the desktop and select it from the menu. Now select power and sleep. As you're probably always plugged in when teaching, set the two drop down menus under the heading screen and sleep to never when plugged in. Now your screen won't switch off and the machine won't go to sleep to save power when you're plugged in. Remember you will need to manually lock the computer if walking away. For this week's visual version, don't forget to check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. 
Good evening, everybody, and welcome back. If you just joined in, uh, fantastic to have you live. Obviously, we're having an absolutely brilliant conversation with Frank and with Adrian this evening, and we're, we're talking uh, the Ofsted um, framework. We're talking about some of the questions that you put on Twitter for me. Um, you know, we're just we're having a real, real honest conversation about the frameworks that we're all experiencing at the moment. Now, I'm just gonna bring back into the room. Um, Adrian and Frank. So thank you for staying with me, both of you. Um, so, um, so the the questions that I really want us to talk through at you know at this point now is what sort of top tips do you have? And if we go with a top tip for a teacher, and then perhaps a top tip for a middle leader, and then a top tip for a senior or a head teacher. So under the current framework, what kind of things, what kind of advice would you give to somebody? And if we start off with Adrian, and then I'll mute and I'll bring Frank in just because the feedback's um, a bit funny at the moment. Yeah, I think Frank's brought his party back with him. Um... <laughs> Um, okay, so top tip for a, a teacher in the current framework is to to bear in mind that when you're being looked at, you're not being judged, your lesson's not being given a grade. Um, it, it's the purpose of visiting lessons is to see whether the conversation that the inspector has had with the, the subject lead, to see whether that's the curriculum as outlined then, is the curriculum that actually happens in practice. Um, so on that basis, try to be less nervous, essentially, because mm -hmm. it's not about you. Um, although, obviously, you know, you're going to be wanting to show that you are, presumably, if you've got a good relationship with your um, subject leader, you're going to be wanting to um, put, put your best foot forward for, for them, obviously. Um, in terms of subject leaders, it, it is all about you, much more than any other framework. I mean, head teachers often say to me that on day one of an inspection, they, they feel like spare parts because in previous frameworks, the lead inspectors really stuck with the head teacher very closely. But now um, on day one, the focus is very much on subjects. So it's a conversation with the subject leader um, about um, what they're what their intent for the subject is and how that's implemented. So um, be my, my top tip for subject leaders is be prepared because you don't know whether your subject is going to be chosen for a deep dive. So assume it is and be and, and have stuff written down to take into you with the inspector. So be very clear. This is what my subject intent is. And it's written down here so that when I get tongue tied, it's OK because I've got I've got my prompt with me. And how do I select the knowledge that we're going to use, uh, that we're going to teach, and the order we're going to teach it in, have it written down. Um, and, and, and I guess it, it's the same advice, really, for senior leaders to make sure that they're able to talk coherently about what their school's all about, about what its aim is, and what your area of response, particularly with head, head teachers, what, what, what is your curriculum intent and don't mention maximizing GCSE results or A-level results but have something a bit more educationally focused than that um, and again have it in advance ready for that call from the, from the lead inspector when it comes. Fantastic thank you Adrian. Um, is there anything else that you want to add to that Frank? 
No, I'm, I'm sorry if uh, I, I'm in a room with no noise. I, I, I oh, cannot, it I, settles down. It's, just when, uh, it's when I talk and you talk. <laughs> I, I think that the point that Adrian made was right. But I mean, I think it, it, this is around consistency of message, isn't it? And and actually, it's probably just very good leadership. If, you know, a test of leadership is, you know, um, at, at the, the lowest point or the, the point of, uh, I don't mean that in a sort of like hierarchical way, but the point of where the delivery of this is happening, you know, is, is, is there a consistent message about what all this is leading to? You know, and so in effect, um, I'm sure that Adrian and I have seen on inspection where, uh, a lead uh, a head teacher has said something's going to happen. You'll see, you'll definitely see this during the next two or three days, and actually, you don't. And actually, these are such easy errors, mistakes that are made by managers, leaders, um, and and so in a way, it's 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 not about preparing for the inspection, but it's actually just making sure that everybody understands what this is all, where this is all meant to lead to. You know, um, so that. In effect, when an inspector meets anybody within a particular department or within a, a phase in a primary school, you know everybody's singing from the same hymn sheet, really. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's it's around that I think. Just it probably makes the point about leaders being very good communicators, both with their staff and with inspectors. Absolutely. And do you think? Because um, this was one of the questions as well. There's there's sort of a, a myth around. Some people seem to seem to think when when an HMI or an inspector walks into a school that they already know the judgment within the first sort of five ten minutes, um, and that that's sort of been going on on Twitter as well. And I think to be fair, you've already answered that because Frank, you said earlier on that actually if it's going to be a four, you know very early on if it's going to be a four. I just wanted to know sort of your opinion around that myth as well. I'm not saying that every every four is 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 you know, absolutely clear from the minute you walk in. Um, but I, I would say that where schools are really under stress and strain and they really are just holding it together, it doesn't take long to realise that. And uh, I think both Adrian and I, sadly, have inspected schools where there is a complete breakdown in trust, where students and pupils are clearly unhappy and uh, you know that, that it, do, it doesn't take long um, uh, for that for that news to be shared with inspectors. Um, so uh, if there is something sort of you know sort of terribly wrong with the school, uh, it really is very easy. And the same when you go and I mean, when, I know we're not inspecting teachers or teaching, but actually relationships. When there's a breakdown in relationships in any classroom, you know, you, you don't need to be a trained inspector to work this out. You know. It's fairly obvious, you know. So I think that for me, um, uh, it, it's a little. I, I didn't want to give the impression that, that, that it's all prejudged. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that, but but actually, when it is really bad, it's really bad, and it's really easy to see. Yep, absolutely. And I absolutely didn't mean it that way either. I just um, it's one of the the questions that was circulating on Twitter, so I thought I would ask, and you've definitely answered it. Um, so thank you so much for that. I suppose um, where I'd like to go next is to think about the current GCSE curriculum. So if we start off with Adrian, um, what what's your opinion around the current GCSE curriculum? Um, you know, compulsory maths and science, but it can exclude other subjects like humanities, business. Um, I know that's that's one of your 
questions. So just just a little bit of thoughts around your opinion around our current curriculum and perhaps where you would go if, if you had the opportunity to take it. Well, it, it's interesting that back in 1904, the then Board of Education, the precursor to the Department for Education, um, issued a list of subjects um, that schools should be, secondary schools should be doing. Um, and if you put it in, in one column and then put the E back next to it in another column, um, it's quite difficult to see which one is 1904 and which one's 2122. 20, um, the, the, the difference basically is that in 1904 they, they had to do woodwork and no they don't. Um, or I think it's needlework for girls. Uh, so we, we haven't exactly got a cutting edge curriculum. Um, one of my last jobs, no it wasn't one of my last jobs actually unfortunately, but it was, it was five five years ago now 2016 the last the last report that michael wilshaw when he was chief inspector commissioned was he commissioned me to do a, a survey called getting ready for work and he said to me look adrian in a, a comprehensive school that um we in ofsted would judge as outstanding probably you know if 70 percent of the pupils were getting five A stars to see at GCSE as it was on, back in 2016. Um, we'd probably say that, that you know, that, that was outstanding because it was based on achievement in those days. Um, but what about the other 30%? What are we doing for them? So um, he, he was actually interested in the other 30%, just as Jeff Barton from the... Um, uh, I've heard him talk about the, the other 30%. And we, we've got this system now with GCSEs and it, it, it's been there for a long time it's certainly been in place since um, since Michael Gove was Secretary of State um, but it perhaps became more obvious over the last couple of years um, and certainly this year where the DfE is deciding in advance what the grade boundaries are going to or not what the grade boundaries will be but what the proportion of pupils getting each GCSE grade is going to be and no matter how well you teach, no matter how hard kids work, there are always going to be a certain proportion that are going to fail GCSE in any subject in order to give validity to the ones that pass. Mm -hmm. What sort of system is that? It's madness. Um, it, it, it would be like saying, um, you, you know, we've got to maintain standards in the driving test by failing a certain certain number, and we won't let them retake it either. So I, I failed four times, so I'd be that statistic. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, if you failed four times and, and then were able to pass, that that didn't really count for very much. Um, it's uh, because oh, it did. It did for my parents. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was being I, I was being ironic or sarcastic or something, um, because. If you can drive, you can drive. If you meet the standard, you meet the standard. And it shouldn't matter how many times you retake things. But I think I, I, I think GCSE, and particularly with the EPAC, it's very curriculum narrowing. Um, my friend Mina Wood has written a book about how we can actually bring in, make the curriculum relevant for, for today and for, for um, so that pupils learn stuff like financial capability that's actually directly relevant to their lives as well as in employability skills i know that's got a dreadful sound amongst Ofsted at the moment but 
um, or at least with the chief inspector and employability skills. No, they need to have good old fashioned knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. And I, I'm in favour of knowledge. I've written, I've, I've written a paper about, about the fact that in enterprise education, we were banging on, we've been banging on um, in Ofsted for over 15 years about enterprise needs to be underpinned by business and economic understanding um, and financial capability. So it's not an issue about kids not needing to know stuff. They do. It's more a question about them knowing a far wider range of stuff to, um, to prepare them for the real world. And of course, a lot you know, you know, a lot of um, this view of the curriculum from the DfE is based on a perception of what maybe independent schools did 40 years ago, or grammar schools. But an awful lot of independent schools and they're scrapping GCSEs as being irrelevant. Um, and it's not like they're moving to the IGCSE. They're just, other than for English and Maths, where their students will need it for um, future jobs and so forth, they're, they're getting rid of GCSEs. Say, well, they'll stay on to, to 18. Why are we putting... Why, why are we putting them through this to 16? And one last point, and then I will shut up. Um, one last point about this. If we were really interested in maximising pupils' learning coming out of the pandemic, so there's gaps in pupils' learning, let's ma maximise their learning as much as we can, why would we stop teaching them anything in Easter of year 11 so that they can do exams? Why won't we keep teaching them stuff until July in year 11 and find some and if you've got our GCSEs then find some better way to assess it oh, I, feel, I feel a book coming on Adrian <laughs> I feel a bit I could write this with you that's that's exactly exactly um what I think it's it's madness isn't it if you think about everything they've missed why why do you have to stop halfway through Henry VIII because they're not going to be taught the rest of the course because it's not in their GCSE exam when they yeah. could learn the rest of Henry VIII. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree. Absolutely. Fantastic. Um, so it, it only does the feedback when I'm talking and Frank's talking. So I'm going to ask the question and then I'm going to unmute and then we won't get the feedback. So Frank, when you come back in, if you've got anything to add in response to Adrian, that'd be great. If not, um, perhaps you could talk a little bit about you know, are there forgotten subjects in schools that um, inspectors look at? And uh, there's a common theme that a lot of schools tend to forget about. Yeah, I, I, I'd like to call both of them, mate, because the, the, the second part of that relates to the research that Adrian Gray, a former HMI, as I mentioned before, has done about deep dives and what the chances are of you getting uh, as a subject in the secondary school, what the chances of getting uh, a deep dive in your area are. But the, the first one, I think, I just because I, 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 I'm very concerned about this sort of cliff edge that we seem to have created at GCSE, you know, around this sort of grade four, grade five, even now with regard to suggestions that unless you get a grade five in maths and English, then, you know, tough luck with your sort of uh, any maintenance grants or any sort of university um, tuition fees and stuff like that. But the thing for me is I was really taken, um, because of the work I do in the North, I was really taken with the work of Professor Ruth Lupton at Manchester University, who analysed the children who didn't get their English and maths at grade four. And, and, and many of these children, not all, but quite a, quite a proportion of them, do really well. They, they get good grades in other subjects, but they might not get it in English or they might not get it in maths. And the, you know, for some of those uh, young people, they enter uh, 
post-16 study having to do this sort of extra catch-up lesson uh, uh, or, or examination class in order to get their maths or English, whichever one they failed. And, and I think that Ruth's work uh, highlights, and I'd really, you know, I'd, I'd urge people to go and have a look at it because um, it seems grossly unfair. We, we, we basically can't afford, the country cannot afford to sort of uh, target or label young people in this way to make them feel as though that they haven't achieved well, even though they might have got some really stunning grades at uh, GCSE, but they just didn't happen to get it in mathematics, for example. And I, I think that we need to look at a, a much broader range of assessment tools uh, in order to ensure that we um, make sure, because actually the link between the curriculum, you know, the examination process and what we're going to examine infiltrates the curriculum, doesn't it? So the fact that we're not assessing, unless you do modern foreign languages, but we're not assessing how well uh, young people speak and listen and present. The fact that we still have computing GCSE where you're not allowed to take, you can't make it up, can you? You're not allowed to take You know, a, an examination system where actually, unless you've got special permission, you, you're not allowed to type anything. You know, I mean, you, you really cannot make you know it's it's the it's point adrian was making before about we've got an examination system that's designed for a, a, a years gone by rather than preparing young people for the world of work and you know i speak to northern leaders uh, in businesses and, and education is not just about preparing them for work that is an element we're really interested in the now the year 10 kids you know the ones that might not get their maths or you know, there are, some of them are brilliant sales staff, you know, we want them. And I think, well, actually, the whole system isn't designed to draw that out. You know, that, that's the last thing you want. Something that draws out the full range of talents and, and, and attributes and capabilities that young people have. And, and, and that, by only doing that, will we start to sort of reshape what the curriculum will look like in order to deliver that. So if we get a broader range of assessment uh, tools being used at, if we keep it at 16 or 18, then we've got a chance of actually getting a broader range of activities being valued um, and subjects being valued across the curriculum in secondary school. So I think, you know, so then leading on, Adrian Gray did some very interesting work recently analysing the chances of getting a deep dive in secondary school. And, and, and when you think what the country is, is crying out for it with regard to STEM subjects, computing, digital education, for heaven's sake, you would have thought the future is digital, but you wouldn't guess that if you looked at the proportion of chances of that department, computing department, getting a deep dive in a secondary school. You know, you would have thought that's going to be pretty high, isn't it? Because the future mm -hmm. of that is going to be better. No, forget it. So in a way, you know, the... the the, the, there should be a link between those deep dives and what the, the country's developing industrial need is for the workforce going forward, but there isn't. It's still stuck in the way that it used to be, you know, probably it would have been 10, 20 years ago. So in a way, I'd, again, I think Adrian's done some fantastic work drawing that out because we wouldn't have known that unless it would taken the FOI, made an FOI request to, to Ofsted to, 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 to find that out. And, and actually, that, that needs much broader coverage. And, and the profession needs to challenge that, needs to challenge Ofsted as to why is it that way. Um, 
anyway. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. I've, I've, I had to meet you because our, our voices don't work at the same time. But um, I think for me, we've talked about this this curriculum. When I, this must be about six years ago, I think this this is when it happened to me. So I was, I teach history and I was doing GCSE and it happened up and down in every single S2 meeting. But you talk about, you know, students being taken out of certain subjects because they must get their English and maths because the data is that English and maths crossover. Those are your headlines. And I taught history and I had this student and I don't I don't know if I agreed with it. We, we had I was told I had to almost convince him and his parents to stop studying history to focus on his English and maths because he needed to get that four in English and maths. And he cried and I was absolutely devastated. And I think it was at that point that I realised, whoa, there is something seriously wrong with this system. This boy just loves history. He might not get a four or a five or a six, but what he will get is so much enjoyment because he absolutely loves studying it. And what I've done is had a conversation with him and it's destroyed him. Um, and I think at that point, I just I just thought to myself, there's got to be a better way. The system just doesn't seem to work. It's a really sad story there, isn't it? I mean, that and, and that's that, that, sadly, Ruth Lupton's work highlights that that, that is being played out in some of our most challenging, socio-economically challenged areas in the country. And sadly, a lot of those are in the north. And, you know, I think that we're sort of... And, and when you speak to business leaders, they can see the potential in the young people. They, they're looking beyond the grade four and the grade five. You know, the, the enlightened ones are. You know, and I think that we need to, you know, to sort of... And, and, and if the government is a government for business, I, I would assume they're all listening carefully to what business leaders are telling them. Um, are they? <laughs> because these are stories that I, I, I'm hearing regularly from, from, from uh, large business leaders in the north. You know, um, and many of them having to take things into their own hands by creating you know, uh, learning programs or development programs for young people because they can see the talent and they can see that they being sort of held back by by the sort of um, examination system that we have, which primarily is delivering, you know, sort of really able students going to university. <laughs> but actually, you know, the system, and probably most systems will do that anyway. You know, and as Adrian said, the, the, our, our productivity, the, the, work, the country's productivity is hanging on how well we develop the the, uh, the lower attaining end of, of, of the, of the uh, pupils and students that we have. You know, and actually, we, we call it lower attaining, but actually, they've, they've they've got the ability, they've got the potential, they've got the the talent. It just might not be in the narrow area that we're focusing in on and making important. So uh, I, I I think that you know, looking looking to the future, I, I, the reason why I still remain so optimistic is because regularly meeting young people, you just feel inspired by them. And you think, well, goodness me, we've just got to let you know, let this free, let let this talent and ambition free, let it let it roll, and uh, and and let's reduce some of these cliff edges, these artificial cliff edges that we've introduced and we continue to introduce, you know, that make it even more difficult and, and less interesting, and less varied um, than it ought to be. I didn't get my GCS, I didn't get my O level maths, by the way. I'm rather proud of that now. <laughs> you hold me back. I wonder what it would do now 
if I didn't get that grade four, for whatever reason, where would I be now? It just it just seems it seems so silly. And I, I, it took it took me a lot to get my GCSE maths, and it took my parents a lot of uh, tutoring for me to get my GCSE maths. And I think all I ended up doing in the end was learning the formulas off by heart because I could learn things off by heart, but I could I could never apply maths because that's not the way my brain works. Um, but I did it because I learned off by heart. I hadn't done anything for me. I massively struggle with numbers even today. Like if somebody if somebody told me to do some I don't know mental maths thing like when I was trained to be a teacher I took that test 10 times that the questions began to repeat themselves so it's you know where would you be today and, and what what would what would the world be if we didn't have Frank Norris um so it's just the the curriculum conversation we could do a whole show on that um and I do actually have Jeff Barton coming on the podcast on the 10th of May. So it'd be really great at some point to get you two um, helping me perhaps um, think about some questions with curriculum to ask him. That'd be absolutely fantastic if you can do that. Um, now, I'm very aware that we are running out of time, but I'm also aware that the show after us is no longer happening. So we do have about five extra minutes because I think we could probably talk for hours on this but I don't want to uh, take up any more of your time so um, Adrian I'd just like to end on a question with you if that's okay mm-hmm. um, as obviously we're a teacher's talk radio um, do you have a favourite memory from school that you'd be willing to share with us oh I have a favourite memory from inspections <laughs> go on um, then give us that one <laughs> um, it is um, it, was, it was a long time ago because it was back before I was an HMI, it was when I was a, a jobbing Ofsted inspector. Actually, I've got, I've got two, very briefly. Okay, so this one is when I was a jobbing Ofsted inspector, when we used to go in with teams of 15, 20 inspectors for a week in, into a school. And um, there's gentlemen, and we used to, you know, what goes around comes around because we, we've been talking about focusing on subjects. Well, of course, we, we used to be subject inspectors and the, and because I could do a bit of music, the I was in to do business studies, but um, the music inspector, um, I was asked to do a bit of mu- a music lesson or an IT lesson or something. And the, but the music inspector ended up going in, anyway. And this classroom had a leaking roof. It transpired. It also transpired that for some reason um, they taken the bucket that was sitting on a chair under this leak. They'd taken the bucket away and just left the chair there. So when my colleague, music inspector, went in to observe the lesson that I should have been inspecting, and I should have been observing, he went and saw, oh, there's a spare chair there. I'll go and sit on it. And then he came back to the base room in these absolutely soapy wet trousers, swearing at me for some reason. <laughs> um, and so that, 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 was, uh, that was one, one anecdote. And then when I became... When I was in my first year as an HMI, as as Frank said, we we, used to, we were lucky. We had this fantastic Rolls Royce induction experience of following around other HMI, doing all sorts of different different jobs. Um, anyway, I was um, I was following my mentor. We were inspecting a infant school, um, but it shared a playground with the junior school next door. Um, and I started talking to these pupils. It, it was lunchtime. I started talking to these pupils. And I just followed them at the end of lunch, followed them back into their classroom. 
And um, I sat down in their classroom and the teacher said to me, you're very welcome to stay, but you do know you're inspecting the other school. <laughs> I bet she was like, go away. <laughs> yeah, I was the, certainly the welcome guest there. <laughs> um, though she shouldn't have left a chair vacant for you then. Well, indeed. Um, thank you so, so much, Adrian, for coming on this evening. Um, obviously, I'm going to ask uh, the same question to Frank. So I'm going to put you on mute and then we're going to have to end the show. Um, I hope you've had fun and it's definitely been insightful to me and it's been a fantastic show. So thanks, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for the invite. Not a problem. Speak to you soon. Um, right, Frank, the same question for you. So if, if you had a favourite memory or a favourite teacher from school that you'd be willing to share or a favourite memory from your career, that'd be really great to hear. I think um, wanting to end on a positive sort of upbeat note, um, I, I remember when uh, I was working in Ofsted um, and David Bell was the chief inspector and I, I, was work I wasn't a senior inspector or anything, but... Um, uh, I used to get in the office in London quite early and David would often come down and just have a chat. He was very keen on football and would chat with a number of people there. And I do remember David then um, went to become the permanent secretary at the Department for Education. And I, by about a couple of years later, I had become reasonably senior. So I was going over to the department for a meeting and uh, I bumped into David at the uh, entrance to the building. And David said to me, how's Arlene? And how are the children? And Arlene's my wife, and we've got three children. And I thought, wow, that's really impressive. That's really impressive, David. You know, how have you done that? There's just a sense that for, for me, you know, the leadership that he showed and the leadership that I tried to show is, is based on a, a personal relationship with, the, with, those, with the people that work with me. And I think David Bell demonstrated then, as he did on many occasions, you know, the humanity of leadership and his ability to connect with people. And uh, uh, I think that for me, you know, we, we must all strive to be that type of leader, um, you know, where everybody and everybody's situation, everybody's context is, is understood and appreciated and, 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 and valued. So, yeah, I think for me, um, that was a very strong sign of very effective leadership at that point. Um, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, one of one of the other questions that I was going to ask you that um, we don't have time for, unfortunately, but it was going to be, what advice would you give someone who wants to make a difference in education? And I think in a weird way, um, well, not in a weird way, in a, in a rather fantastic way, the humanity of leadership is, is a really really powerful way to end the show. Um, I'm currently doing my MPQH and, you know, understanding the people that, that work around you is, is everything and sometimes can be forgotten. And I think that that is an absolutely fantastic quote. So thank you so much. And also thank you so much for giving up your time. And I know that you were out this evening. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and joining us, Frank. <laughs> been my pleasure thank you for inviting me 
Lovely. Okay, so we have run over by about five minutes, but I'm sure they'll forgive us. It's been an absolutely fantastic evening of education, of free CPD. Um, if you're listening back to this, please, um, you know, tweet any of your questions and um, I can contact Frank and I can contact Adrian and we can open up another dialogue if need be, or we can invite them back at some point in a few months time, because it is so incredibly useful to get um, information from, you know, people that have this huge vast wealth of experience within the systems that we're currently dealing with um so i'm going to be back next week and on next week's show i have got emma turner um if you know anything about emma turner she is a superb leader of primary education she's also has her own podcast she's an author uh, she's currently fighting for flexible working with the dfe and it's going to be a fantastic show so that's going to be on the 8th of march so please 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 tune in and listen to that and apart from that have a fantastic week and i will see you next week you've been listening to teachers talk radio Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.